but uh, so if you could kind of open it slightly so that people can you're on yeah, it just, oh exactly and then just leave it like that yeah that's perfect thank you so otherwise people can't get in <laughs> yeah, go for it hi everybody i think we're ready to start now um have you turned on the mm? recorder yeah okay great um, my name is Carolina and I'm one of the graduate co-conveners of the discussion group. I'm very glad to see so many of you here. And today we're going to talk about studying literature in an interdisciplinary way. So um, things like using cognitive science or social anthropology <coughs> to broaden our understanding of literature. And our two speakers today are Ben Morgan, who is a professor of German, and Peter Thiel, <coughs> who is a junior research fellow in Arabic literature. We're going to start by listening to their conversation about the kind of interdisciplinary research that they have done and I will moderate that discussion but then after 15 minutes we're gonna open up the discussion and we hope that all of you will participate you will be very welcome to comment on the issues that will be raised during the, the <coughs> this introductory conversation but also if you've had time to look at the readings that we sent out last week it would be great if you could kind of refer to them as well and we're always very keen to hear about your own, your own work and to hear about your experience with doing interdisciplinary work in the context of literary studies. Um, and please do share your experience with us. But now let me start by asking both Ben and Peter about their own experience. And um, I'd like to hear about the, kind of the, the other disciplines that you've used in your work. And if you could tell us how they have aided your study of literature and, and what you've gained from this interdisciplinary approach. Then you want to go first. Um, thanks very much, Carolina. So uh, if at any moment you can't hear what I'm saying, because when I get enthusiastic, I tend to talk very fast and a little indistinctly, then do just stop me. So um, I think I'm, I'm going to concentrate today, since you have the Ellen Spolsky um, was, was distributed, I'm going to concentrate on the ways in which uh, what I found interesting about um, the tradition of, on the one hand of phenomenology and on the other hand of cognitive science and the way that can feed into a study of literature. And um, as you probably know, since the 1990s, there's been a sort of increasing crossover between um, phenomenology that, that, that draws on Heidegger and Merleau Ponty, and those areas of cognitive science which are interested in the uh, embodied interaction with the world. And what that produ has produced is a number of um, strong hypotheses about the way in which some putative human being who's in some way universalized um, are necessarily um, uh, that identity is necessarily constituted by interaction with others and with the environment. And um, but what, what's been particularly interesting about the way this has bled into the study of literature is the, w the fact that this, um, what might be a simple sciences versus humanities split where the scientists tell us the truth about our literary world, has become much more productive because the encounter with the richness of literary contexts means that um, this universalizing image of the human has been um, complicated. And so I think it's a particularly interesting tool for <coughs> comparative literature because it gives us a number of um, uh, useful ways of thinking about um, the, role, uh, the role of universals in our arguments and also the, the, way, the different ways in which we can conceptualize um, uh, historical specificity. And for instance, one of the things that this does is um, it, it makes us fragment our idea, uh, the ideas of time that with which we approach a text, because any particular text is going to be um, t occurring, obviously, on lots of different levels of time. There's going to be the sort of the deep evolutionary time where you can ex expect that the sorts of encounters um, 
recorded in the text might indeed have some sort of universal validity and then there's going to be um, various levels of historical time and then of course the individual time of writer, reader and character. And it's about, and, and what I find um, interesting is the attempt to find a, uh, a way of um, bridging these, the, the claims of these different sorts of time. And it's obviously, I mean, Ellen Spolsky is doing it, Terence Cave is doing it, lots of the, of the clever critics in cognitive literary criticism are trying to deal with these sorts of problems. Um, and the other question I'm particularly interested in is how um, text then um, feature, uh, figure forms of human interaction. Uh, and on the one hand, we've got lots of interesting cognitive science telling us about levels of embodied resonance and the way in which we, we learn and gain an identity through our encounter with others. And on the other hand, we've got texts which are showing the specific historical vocabularies through which those forms of human interaction are lived. I should probably stop because I could, I could, otherwise, I'll go on all afternoon. Great, thank you. Peter? Um, yeah, well, you've asked me to talk about, about my own experience of. Um, of using different disciplines, so maybe I'll, I'll do that briefly, and then maybe we can get on to some of the texts which I suggested, which I hope people have at least had time to, to look at. Um, I mean, I guess I'm somebody who started off doing literature and has moved more and more towards doing kinds of historical work, <laughs> um, which are, you know, either intellectual history or really verging on um, social history in order to explain um, how the literature got to be the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the crudest terms um, and I guess one of the things that has kind of led me in that direction has been something that um, is raised in this uh, this short piece by Raymond Williams, a problem perspective from the country in the city which I sent around which is this notion that um, when one is dealing with a particular literary tradition it is possible to deal with it um, in its own terms or to step outside it and to place it alongside other kinds of fact and other kinds of experience which are, which are not really encapsulated within that, um, that literary tradition. So, you know, he, he describes it in this piece as, a, um, as an escalator which um, seems to move between historical periods and to talk about the ways in which change has happened. And one always seems to be just at the point at which uh, a great change has happened in rural life and before that there was a continuity. Um, but this is found at, you know, repeatedly at, at different historical epochs. And so he says, you know, if we're to understand how this has come about and how it's important as an aspect of the wider history, one has to first see the regularity by stepping outside it, rather than simply taking these um, these claims either as the products only of a only of a literary tradition, um, or as actual claims about an actual world in a, in in a direct sense. Um, and so, sorry, am I am I going on a bit? Um, I I guess that. Seeing as what one is doing within literary studies is generally reading a highly articulate and very sophisticated set of documents, um, but nonetheless documents which can be compared to other historical documents and uh, that are produced at particular moments in time, um, there is a certain danger of being seduced by the power of that particular tradition as against the other less articulate ones. 
that what one finds oneself um, respecting and repeating the tropes of that um, highly articulate tradition more so than um, other things which may be very fragmentary if you look at the range of things which histor historians deal with whether it's a, a, a lease contract or a, um, a set of tax records or um, you know archaeological um, findings and and fragments which you know are nonetheless documents and, and nonetheless often in language sometimes not um, that what one is continually trying to um, compare these as different forms of context to one another rather than necessarily privileging um, what one above the others at least I, I find that that's that that's a a useful habit to get into, even if the the literary tradition, as it were, is still quite central. Um, so, <coughs> I suppose it's a it, it it's a shift from from reading to a kind of um, re, re, reading with texts to to a large extent to a kind of scepticism in which one is often reading in a in in a in a attitude of. of uh, I think uh, attentive disbelief is what <laughs> is, is what one historian called it. Um, Thank you. Oh, is, is that enough yeah. for your purposes? Oh. Yeah, no, I, I think from what you've said, it, it, it seems like for both of you, the, the biggest promise of interdisciplinary research is kind of zooming in on the, the, the kind of dialectic of some kind of universal recurrent pattern versus the specificity of historical experience. It seems to be interesting. You, you both seem to be interested in that. Um, so, so there's the kind of the promise of interdisciplinary work, and, and what are the biggest problems, the challenges that you've faced, and, and how have you dealt with them? Uh, so, my, um, well, uh, the, the one obvious challenge is just that you end up saying the same thing about every text. Um, so that when you when you have a when you have an underlying, so if I'm if I'm looking at uh, want to work out some. Um, rich model for human interaction that the cognitive science and the phenomenology is, is giving me. And I obviously want to use the text to do more than just prove that my model is right. So they're just finding ways of, and it's just about how you structure your argument, finding ways of moving back and forth between them so that the literary text is, is driving the argument as much as my theoretical model. Um, and I suppose also um, another thing to do is to try and kind of cultivate a plural, pluralism of models, because what struck me in what Peter was saying is that we're both interested in ways in which the tropes through which things are normally approached and or the self-understanding of the area we're studying can be called into question in a sympathetic way. And I'm partly looking to some, some alternative account of how interaction might really have worked. And Peter is similarly looking to some historical documents or whatever to see you know, what, what other ways of constructing this interaction are available. Um, and I, I guess it's important for me not to, not, to, not to be too sold on my own tropes, but have some ways of trying to um, try out into different models and allow the text to talk it back at me and, and tell me I might be wrong. So it's just, it's just, um, yes, uh, calling people in question without, or calling a self-understanding in question without being too convinced that one's actually has found a real truth beneath them. Okay. Yes, it, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it, on on the one hand, one one can say that the the literary sources one's dealing with are, are very articulate compared to other sources, and other sources may need more reconstruction if, if, if you're looking to create some sort of coherent um, <laughs> argument out of them. But at the same time, um, oneself as a, as, a, as a writer, as a, as a scholar, as a historian, is 
potentially um, even more alarmingly articulate than the literary sources. And, and so one has to question that as well. And I, I quite see what you're saying, that um, measuring oneself against, against uh, the, the literary text can be, can be one, one way of achieving that. But I don't know. I mean, if, if you're talking about problems which I encounter with working in that kind of way, I think that um, one, of, one of the difficulties is that it, it, is quite, it is simply quite easy to read with the grain of text, whether it's a particular um, kind of um, text that are, that are very articulate and, um, or another kind which one's fitted into a certain model. It's quite easy to, for instance, um, and you can, you can read you know, plenty of stuff in history that's written there, to, that, to take one set of documents that are, um, say, a set of economic statistics which don't look particularly um, articulate in their own sense, but nonetheless to make that the centre around which one's narrative is constructed and to take those as defining all of the other things. And one then brings in little literary anecdotes and little snippets as confirmatory, you know, anecdotal evidence, but actually, you know, um, th this, this other um, form of knowledge is central. Um, and so, yes, there are, there are lots of, of ways of, um, of privileging a particular um, kind of order of evidence and an order of explanation which one's using to explain that evidence over others and I think it is vital to try and move between them and to compare them because otherwise one's um, one, one's left with no controls I mean that that's I think that's a, a, a similarity in what we're saying that um, yeah, it sounds as though you're both kind of trying to work out the relationship between the broader argument or the model that you're using and, and actually the kind of the, the evidence of the text that you're using, trying to kind of salvage its the, the singularity or the specificity and the literariness of a text, but also trying to make it work in the kind of broader argument, which in this case comes not only from the perspective of literary history, but also other disciplines, and so you have to try and, and make it work as a kind of coherent narrative that doesn't privilege one type of text or evidence over another. Um, so my last question now would be, in the context of literary studies, which other interdisciplinary combinations do you think sound particularly <coughs> fruitful or interesting, um, but, have, but haven't been developed as much yet? or? kind of offer exciting opportunities for all of us looking for new <laughs> challenges. Ben? It's a difficult question. Well, I mean, uh, I obviously think at the moment that um, this kind of this borderline between cognition and culture is really fruitful and hasn't been explored yet, so I haven't yet, haven't yet got on to thinking what I will be doing next. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so I suppose just encourage, because, because of the way um, because we, we now have the easy access via Google Scholar and online journals to such a wide range of um, such a wide range of material, I think it's it's not um, we don't even have to particularly know in advance what discipline we might be using um, because it's so um, with a few keywords it's so easy to start following a line. And obviously, one has to one might be it might be a wild goose chase. You may be going nowhere, or you may. And there's always the difficulty that if you jump dip into someone else's debate, actually you're 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 making such obvious mistakes because you haven't got to know the material yet. But essentially, it's always worth um, broadening your search beyond the familiar critics, mm -hmm. um, and or and also following up reviews of books in odd places because that's one of the ways in which I kind of stumbled into this territory because I was just reading the reviews of a standard history of the self and I found 
it was being reviewed in lots of directions and that made me begin to see some of the connections. So rather than saying, well, there's this area over there which we can all run to and then wait and be, be, be fruitful, I think it's just that we now have the resources um, to hand to, to kind of invent our interdisciplinarity anew pretty much every time we start a project if we have the time and the intellectual energy. Great. Peter, what's your take on that? Um, I, I think that, that, sounds, that sounds like a great model of working if you can do it that way. Um, I, I have to say that working between literature and history, I found that history is a very porous discipline and that it's quite easy to just pick up a history book and read it. It doesn't if, as if there's very much mystique to it very often, that you know, one feels that one has to learn a particular kind of method. And so, it, um, you know, obviously there, there are particularly kind of technical areas of history, but it's often a very sort of generalist and open um, mode of writing. One thing, and one of the reasons why, why I circulated this is um, that I think possibly um, one area that hasn't been explored very much is the connection between literature and anthropology. And Edwin Ardener's piece may be stimulating to an extent in, in that regard, in, in the sense that, um, again, one's trying to find other cross-bearings on similar kinds of, um, of facts that have happened in, in society, and the literary tradition is one. And this particular, because you know, anthropology has a bit more of a kind of you know hardcore methodology to it. it you know, it's based on um, something like participant observation, which is the the, the, the kind of Manonovskian tradition, at least. That um, you know, that this is another way of of approaching um, how to get knowledge out of, in this case, individual individual members of the society, and then construct generalizations about it from that. Um, but anyway, I mean, we, we can go into a more general discussion yeah. about that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, you've presented some kind of interesting ways into interdisciplinarity in, in, in kind of your two cases, but also some general ideas. Um, I'm now going to turn off the recorder so that we can all speak freely.